You know what I'm going to do today? I'm just going to share a passage of Scripture that God has used in my life, uh, oh, for many, many years, uh, a long, long time, to encourage me. And I found out something years ago about preaching. That is, if, if God can bless my heart through a passage of Scripture, then He can use that to bless somebody else's heart. If it hasn't done anything for me, chances are my preaching is not going to do anything for anybody else. Amen? And so this is a passage that God has really used in my life. We're going to look in Ephesians 2. And for context, I'm going to look to verse 4, read down through verse 10. My preaching is actually coming from verse 10 primarily, but we'll read the rest for context. Beginning in verse 4, Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in, trust, dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and all His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Would you pray with me, please? Father, You have, uh, through the years, used this passage to richly bless my life. You've encouraged me when I was down. You've given me hope when things looked bleak. You've just excited me about the work that you have placed before me. And Lord, my heart is full this morning. And Lord Jesus, I need you today. Would you help me to express clearly and concisely the blessings that you've given to me? Help it to be a blessing to someone here today, please. I don't believe I'm here by any accident at all. I'm here by divine design. And so God, I pray your blessings upon your word today. Make it real to hearts. Make hearts tender in Jesus' name. Amen. To let you know why this was such a blessing to me and the thoughts that I'm going to share with you, I have to give you some background, some context. How many of you are Yankees? Oh, that's a good number, amen. I, I am and I'm not. depends on where I'm preaching. Uh, <laughs> I am from Indiana, but if I'm down south, I, I'm careful to note that I'm from southern Indiana, okay? But uh, I am from up there. And it's hard sometimes for people in the south, especially if you're around this area of the country or Chattanooga or places like that where there are a lot of Baptist churches. It's hard for you to relate to the situation 50 years ago that I grew up in in Indiana. There were no Baptists anywhere near where I grew up. It was a German community there. And uh, you were either Lutheran, Catholic, or in our case, our family was Methodist. That was the only three choices you had. I honestly, and I'm not saying it to be funny, I didn't know a Baptist from a Buddhist. I would have known the difference. I had no idea what a Baptist was. And so I grew up in the Methodist church. Now, that, that was the old-time Methodist. It wasn't the United Methodist of today, so it was a little bit better than that. And I, I understood enough of the gospel to know that I was lost. But I didn't know what it meant to be saved. We would have a yearly revival, and the same people would get saved every year. And even as a teenager, I figured out there's something not quite right with that, although I knew those people, and they probably needed to be saved every year. <laughs> That's bad, wasn't it? But I mean, I knew, I knew that wasn't, I knew that wasn't right. So 
I didn't have any of that. I went, there were no Christian schools. Many of you have had the benefit and the privilege of going to a Christian school out of a, out of a godly home. We had none of that. Our schools, even back in the day, back in the 60s, when I was a student in elementary and high school, we were taught evolution, not as a theory, but as a fact. I didn't buy into that because I never could get past original creation. Even if you buy the Big Bang, you've got to explain somewhere in your, in your thinking where that original matter came from, and they never could explain that to me. But I didn't really know. I wasn't really sure. So after high school, I remember my senior year in high school, my buddies were all getting ready to go to college, and they were doing different things, some to be doctors or lawyers or teachers, whatever they were going to do. I, had, I was a farmer. My dad had been a farmer. My granddad was a farmer. We raised corn, hogs, and soybeans and uh, cattle. That's what we did on the farm. I had no direction at all for my life. After graduation, at 18 years old, I married my high school sweetheart, Carol. She had been raised Roman Catholic, and she wasn't saved either, and she wasn't a religious Roman Catholic, so we got married at 18. We didn't go to church anywhere. I didn't see the point. I hadn't found any answers there, so we just, we didn't go. At 20 years old, we began our family. Our first little daughter was born at 20 years old. And I'm going to share something with you, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, but I was farming at the time, and I remember in the spring of that year when I was 20, you spend long hours in the field on a tractor in the springtime uh, between plowing and disking and planting and all the rest. I remember going back and forth in that field thinking to myself, my dad farmed this ground, my granddad farmed this ground. I'm going to live my whole life, raise my family, I'm going to work here and I'm going to die. And what will have been the difference had I never been born? Now, I loved my wife. I did. And I loved our, our daughter by the time we had a son uh, the, the next year or so. But I, I felt, the best way I can explain it, I felt empty. I felt hollow. I felt without a purpose to my life. And I suspect that's what a lot of people in the world today feel. And so they try to fill up that void, that vacuum, that emptiness, that, that bare spot in their soul with any number of different things. I didn't have any answers. I, I didn't know what to do. I felt so desolate. I, I never voiced it to my wife. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have hurt her. She would have probably misinterpreted that. I, I didn't mean at all that I didn't love her. But I had no real reason to live and I'm telling you that is an awful place to be in your life well as it turns out when I would have been about 15 there was a little Baptist church that did start in a town about 20 miles from where I was living and my sister and my brother-in-law got saved and they uh, were attending that church and invited me when I was 21 years old to go to a Mother's Day service and so I did. My wife and I, and I took our, well, at that time I had two children. We went to the Mother's Day service, and Sunday morning Mother's Day service, I, I didn't know about Baptists. I was a little bit skeptical. I never had really done much, but I talked to somebody between the time that my sister invited me to come, and I went, about the Baptists. I said, what are they like? And they said, well, you know they handle snakes. And so I did, I'm not, I'm not, I, I sat on the back row back there as far as you could get by the door just in case the snakes came out. I didn't think they would, but you never know, so I tried to be prepared. 
Well, the snakes didn't come out, but the Holy Spirit did, and he convicted me. I don't know what the pastor preached. It was, it was a Mother's Day service, so I'm sure he preached on mothers, but for the first time in my life, I was under deep conviction of my sin and my need of God. But I left there that morning determined not to go back because I didn't like being under conviction, all right? And so I went back home. This was in May, it's Mother's Day, and we were farming. And that following Thursday, I found out something else I didn't know about Baptists. They'll follow you home. <laughs> Methodists didn't do that at all. They, if you're nice to them, they'll be nice back. But I got in the, in the house that night on that following Thursday night. I didn't get in the house till 1030 at night put the tractor in the shed. We were farming. We, we worked late. Put the tractor in the shed, walked up toward the house. There was that pastor in my driveway. He had been a farmer too. He knew that I was farming. He knew I'd be in. My wife said he had been sitting there in our driveway since 8.30. Two hours he'd been sitting there waiting for me to come home. You couldn't miss him. He had those that are old enough to remember the old American Motors Gremlins. Remember that? His was lime green. The most hideous car you ever see in your life. But he was sitting there and asked if he'd come in and talk to me while I had my supper. All right, and I was a Methodist. I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't believe all about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his, who he was, the facts about Jesus. I believed in heaven and hell. I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. I believed that he was virgin born. I believed that he died, was buried, and rose again. I believed all that. I knew all about God. I just didn't know God. Probably in 15 minutes, he showed me what it meant to call upon the name of the Lord. He showed me what the grace of God meant. By the way, Ephesians is a book about the grace of God, is it not? And he showed me how to be saved, and I trusted the Lord as my Savior that night. It wasn't more than about six months later that God began dealing with my heart about being a preacher, and I'll never forget that. I was still on the farm, obviously, and again out in the field with the tractor when God so... He had been speaking to my heart for some time, and I knew that he wanted me to be a preacher. And honestly, I, I was a very introverted young man. That's still my bent. I still enjoy being alone. I mean, that's just my nature. And I'll never forget the day that I gave my heart and my life to the Lord to do whatever he wanted me to do. I was on that old John Deere 4020 and I made the turn at the end of the field and I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I know you want me to be a preacher, but I don't think I can ever be a very good one. But Lord, you bought me. I'm yours. So I'll go anywhere you want me to go and I'll do anything you want me to do and I'll do it just as long as you want me to. Now I meant that. With all my heart, I meant that. And God began using me and giving me direction and going step by step. And I was thinking about that in relation to these verses. The grace of God. Ephesians all the way through talks about the grace of God. The grace of God that loved us when we were unlovable. Grace, of course, you know, the unmerited favor of God toward man. I would add the unmeritable favor of God toward man. We can't ever earn God's favor. It's God who sought us when we weren't looking to be saved. It's God who provided salvation for us. It's God who proffered salvation to us. It's God who did the work of salvation in us. It's all of God. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Everything we possess is ours through and by the grace of God. We've earned nothing that we received. I look back on my life and I 
the kind of young man that I was, I wasn't, by this world standards, a bad young man. I was relatively good, and yet I was a great sinner. I think about some of the things I did, and I'm ashamed of those things, but I certainly deserve nothing of the grace of God. None of us do. God has given us salvation. He's given us a job to do. He's given us a calling in our life. Doesn't ask a single thing in return. Didn't, doesn't want us to pay for anything we've got. In fact, that would be a contradiction in terms. If you could earn it, then it wouldn't be grace anymore, would it? So he doesn't ask for a repayment, although he does want a return on his investment when you think about it that way. The work of grace in our lives, if it's real, produces some changes in our life. Changes that allow us to live for God. Changes that bring glory to His name. When grace comes to a lost, dead sinner, the sinner is born again as a new creature in Christ. The old appetites, the ways of living are laid aside for a brand new life. My first pastor said it this way, there's something down in a man that the doctors haven't found called a wanter. And when God saves you, he changes your wanter and you want to do different things than you used to want to do. And, and boy, that's true. Your appetites change, your desires change, your outlook changes, your attitude changes, everything changes. And eventually what is inside you will work its way out. I was talking with Dr. Lucan last night about you, you look at people and sometimes they go along for a long time serving the Lord and all of a sudden major mess-ups happen. You ask yourself, what in the world's going on? Well, what was inside eventually worked its way out. That's what happens. Verse 8 and 9 in our text makes it very clear that works have no part in our salvation. We're not saved by what we do or what we can produce. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, the proof of the genuineness of that decision to trust Christ lies in the changed life. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. This verse before us today, verse 10 is about the work of grace in our life. The verse tells us that what our Lord does in us when He saves us and how He works through us to accomplish His will in this world. It's a challenge to those of God's people to be the examples that He wants us to be before the world. So I want us to think about that. And I'm going to look at just a few words in that verse and the, the language teachers here, if you'll be gracious with me today, Brother Hankey, as I deal with just a couple of words. Look at this first word. For we are His workmanship. Words are important. Amen? The Holy Spirit could have chosen any word He wanted for that, for that expression, but He used the word poema in Greek. His workmanship. That means something that is crafted. Obviously crafted with a purpose. Over time, that word came to be used in an artistic sense as, as an artist expresses himself through his workmanship. In the literary field, it became to be known, we, well, our English word poem comes from that Greek word. It came to be known as, as, a, as a, an author's finest or greatest literary work. His, I think the Latin term is magnum opus, his greatest work. If you think about Shakespeare or somebody like that, 
his greatest work, or I guess we would say in English, his masterpiece. And I don't think I'd be stretching the definition too far because of the context here to say it that way, for we are his masterpiece. The masterpiece of God. Now, my masterpiece wouldn't be that great. Amen? I don't have anything really that I do well. I'm a jack of all trades. I'm a farmer. So I can do some mechanic work. I can do some carpentry work. I can do some electrical work. But I, I can do many things, but I'm not really that great at any of them. Amen? Now, you take somebody like Michelangelo. He was a master sculptor and painter. I've seen some of his sculptures. They almost look lifelike. It's magnificent. They really are. I've been in Rome and I've seen some of the work that he did. Maybe more apropos for you would be at Christmas time when you listen to the Messiah by Handel, particularly the Hallelujah Chorus. I'll never forget my years at Tennessee Temple back in the 70s. And at Christmas time, they'd have the combined choirs. You'd have more than 200 in the choir. And they'd, they'd sing that hallelujah chorus. Man, the hair on the back of your neck would just stand up. Magnificent. Wonderful. And yet, that's just one piece of music among many. There are other composers. Mendelssohn, maybe Mozart. Different ones, you think about them. Bach, perhaps. But Paul didn't say that we were Handel's masterpiece or Bach's or Mozart's. He said, you are his workmanship, God's workmanship, God's masterpiece. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what your life is as God views it today. I remember as an unsaved 20-year-old man looking at my life and feeling really without value, without purpose, without direction, just another number on the planet. But that's not how God sees us. That's not at all how God sees us. I'll never forget the first time my wife and I were at the Grand Canyon. We stood there. We walked up to the edge of it. And I mean, it takes your breath away. The magnitude of it, the enormity of it took my breath away because I'm scared of heights. But <laughs> I mean, it's just an amazing thing to see. And, and God looks down at that and says, that's nothing. I just drug my finger through there. That's no big deal. First time we were traveling in Europe and we went into Switzerland and saw the Alps there. And oh my goodness, they are, even yet today, they thrill me to see them. And, and God said, that's nothing. I just piled up some extra stuff I had. That's no big deal. You go out on a starry night when it's dark outside and there's no lights around. You look up in the expanse of the heavens and you see the stars and you think about that's all that you can see. But beyond that, there are, there are galaxies beyond what we can even imagine. There are billions of them, innumerable for the, for the number. You can't even imagine. And God says, that's, that's not really my masterpiece. You're my masterpiece. You think about that. You think about the angels. I don't know, really, I've never seen an angel. Uh, I, I know enough to read the scriptures about the cherubim and the seraphim, and I understand the description of them, and, and I know that they're radiant and they're glorious and they're magnificent. And I know, for example, the night that the angels announced the birth of the Savior to the shepherds, they fell down sore afraid. They're magnificent creatures, and yet 
they're ministering spirits. They're nothing to compare with you and me, a redeemed soul. He's not talking about just men, for we are his. He's talking about the redeemed saints here. The saints of God are the masterpiece of God. That God, the creator God, would take a, a, a lost man and redeem him and buy him back. You think of how great that is. How magnificent that is. Most of us have no comprehension of how great and mighty and wonderful our God truly is. I've thought a lot about that and with respect to evolution and all the rest of it. I think about the God who inhabits eternity. One day standing on the very threshold of nothing and by the sheer force of his will and through his word he spoke and the universe came into being. And all the magnitude and all the magnificence of it and all the glory of it. And that God who is the creator God says that I am his workmanship. That you are his workmanship. That you are here by divine design. That God has a purpose for your life. Part of my preaching this morning is sparked by a, a, a statement Dr. Beale made during the missions thing. He, at the closing of one of the services, I can't remember which, he, he said, God is shaping you. And that's what God is doing. That's part of being his workmanship. It, we're in a creative process. God is working in us to bring us to the place where we can fulfill his will for us. We are his workmanship. God designed us to be an expression of his soul and his heart, if you will. Is that not what an artistic piece of sculpture or a painting is? Is that not what the, the painter or the sculptor wants to represent? He wants people to look at it and say, oh my, look at this. He's expressing himself. And when God wants, he wants the people to look at us and see his heart. What's important to God? Buildings? No, not really. Buildings are nothing to God. People are important to God. You're important to God. God has a plan for your life. God didn't save us to sequester us within the walls of some monastery or even a church somewhere. He didn't save us just to put us in a little fellowship of fellow believers and where we never go out into the world. God wants us to go out and display Him, to show Him, to make Him known. Let the world see what God has done in us. That word created, you're his workmanship. Created. The idea is not that he is reforming something. God doesn't reform the sinner. He creates a new creature in Christ Jesus. The moment that you got saved, you became a new young man or a new young lady in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners don't need revival. They need vival. Amen? They need to be vived. They have to have life. They're dead in trespasses and sins. We are His workmanship, His masterpiece, created, made from, made from brand new again. In Christ Jesus, that's the source of it. The source of our new life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. When a sinner is saved, it's the greatest of all miracles. Uh, Dr. Snyder, I think it was Dr. Snyder preaching. Don't 
be upset if I misquote. I, I hope not. But he, he was saying that God, if he wanted to, could use the angels to display the gospel if he wanted. He could have the angels come and in their magnificence and in their glory, they could herald the gospel to the world. He could write it in the sky, I suppose, if he wanted to, he being God. And then he said, I don't know why God doesn't use them, but he has chosen to use us. I think I can answer that question for you this morning. I'll tell you why God doesn't use angels, but uses you and me, his masterpieces. There's no angel in all of heaven who has experienced the saving grace of God. There's no angel who's ever been created that knows what it is to be lost without God, to be hopeless and desolate and alone, and to feel the saving grace of God come upon them, and to feel the burden of sin lifted and the guilt gone from their shoulders. No angel knows that. No angel can speak as eloquently as you or I to a lost world about what God can do for us. And that's why God requires us and God commands us and God wants us to go to a world that is dying in their sin and testify of the grace of God that has changed our life, that has altered everything, has made us a new creature and has given us something worth living for. The redeemed are trophies of God's saving grace. The lost man can argue with a whole lot of things in my argument, but he can't argue with the reality of what God's done in my life. Amen. The moment I trusted Christ, Carol got a new husband. My kids got a new daddy. I'm not the same as I used to be. I had a new direction given me. And I went down through the years. I didn't see all this then, but I've seen it in the years come by. God had a purpose. But do you realize that before you were ever even born, According to this passage in Ephesians 2.10, God had a plan for your life. He had a plan before there was even you. God's got a purpose for you. you say, but, and here's something else I've, I've watched over the years. The diversity of, of the servants that God uses. I, I'm in a lot of churches, a lot of different pastors, meet a lot of people. It's amazing how many different kinds of personalities that God uses. And people from different backgrounds and different abilities and different talents and, and all of that. And we don't have to be cookie-cutter Christians, amen? God doesn't have us all fit in the same mold. God has us just for this one will fit here and this one will fit here. And, and you can reach people that I could never reach. And I maybe can reach people that you couldn't get to first base with. And God has a ministry for you that he would never have for me. And God has a, a ministry for you that would be very different than anybody else's. But it's still of God. God has each of us suited. His workmanship in us is preparing us and forming us and shaping us for a particular work that he had in mind before we were ever even formed. Now, I'm not a Calvinist. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not. But I still believe that God is as big a God as we got is a sovereign over His creation. Amen? And I believe that God does work in our lives. I believe that He orchestrates things. I believe that He coordinates things. You say, you don't know the, the home life that I came out of, preacher. You don't know. I didn't have a Christian home. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I'm not saying that everything in your life is necessarily good, but I'm saying the God that we have can take even the most horrible things and turn it around and make it work for good for you. He can use that to chip away at you and to mold you and to shape you and to make you and make you fit where He wants you to fit. And I think that's a marvelous thing. Next to my salvation itself, the greatest day in my life was when I realized that God had something for me to do with my life. That I had value to God. That there was a purpose for me. And all I had to do was to be submitted to Him and He would show me His plan for my life. That is a great day in your life. You know what problem with so many young people is today? We're trying to negotiate with God and we're telling God, here's, God, here's what I'll do for you. God's not interested in negotiating with you. God wants full, unconditional surrender. Amen? God will show you His will. Do you think really that the God who, that, that is creating in you this new creature, this God who is, that, that has developed his masterpiece in you. Do you think he doesn't want you to know his will? Of course he wants you to know his will. We make this whole thing way more. We have books about knowing the will of God. How do you know the will of God? All kinds of books about it. It doesn't have to be that complicated. We overcomplicate so many things. Here he is. Lord Jesus. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll do it just as long as you want me to. If you mean that, you'll know His will. It's just that, you say it can't be that simple. It is that simple. God wants you to know His will. He wants you to do His will, but He wants you, you have to be surrendered to it. In Christ Jesus. You think about that. Then a word about works. He has created us in Christ Jesus unto good works. God has a plan, a ministry for you. Now, I would pray that many of you, God has called you and has equipped you and is working in you to be missionaries. But I don't know that. I would pray that some of you young men, we have more than 85 churches have called us and looking for a pastor across this country. We have churches all around America now that are without pastors and they're dying and they're going to be, we desperately need pastors. I would pray that some of you are called by God to be pastors. I would, I pray that, but I don't know that. I don't know what God's specific ministry for you is, what He is preparing you for, but I do know that if we would all be surrendered, now think with me on the logic of this. If we would all be surrendered to the will of God for our life, universally, every one of us, and be willing to say, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll do it as long as you want me to. If we would do that, don't you think there'd be enough pastors, there'd be enough missionaries, there'd be enough workers, there'd be enough Christian school teachers, hey, there'd be enough policemen, there'd be enough businessmen, there'd be enough teachers, there'd be enough everything. The body of Christ would be complete. The problem is not God. The problem is we're not surrendering to the will of God. We think we know more about what makes us happy and how we want, what we want out of life than God. Let me tell you something, you'll never be happier You'll never be more fulfilled than you are in the very center of God's will for your life. Because you're created.
for a purpose. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Before you were ever born, God had a plan for your life. He had, a, he had something in mind for you. He has a place for you. He has a ministry for you. doesn't have to look like anybody else's ministry. You don't have to be as smart as everybody else or as talented as everybody else. God knows I'm not. He knows that. And yet, in the places that God has put me, I've been able to be used of God. And you will be too. If you'll let God have His way with your heart and with your life, He'll open up His will to you and you'll find His direction and you'll be satisfied in it and God will use you and He'll bless you and He'll bless others through you. And is that not the purpose of life? Isn't that what life is about? Is to be a blessing to others and to glorify our God through that? It changed my life when I realized that I had something worth getting out of bed for every morning. When I realized that there was something that I could do that God had specifically and especially equipped me to do. I don't have to be a Charles Spurgeon. I don't have to be somebody else. I just have to be me. And the experiences of my life, the parents I had, the teachers I had, the pastors I had, uh, the, the circumstances that I went through growing up, all of that, all of that, God coordinated in me to make me fit where He wants me to fit and be successful in the ministry He's called me to. Now, I could fight that. I could buck that. I could say, no, I want to do my thing but I'd never be successful. I'd never be fruitful. I'd never be happy. I'd always be uh, at odds with God. Or I can just say, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. I'm bought with a price. I belong to you, lock, stock, and barrel. My dreams, my aspirations, my goals, I lay them down. God, what do you want for me? I'll go there. I'll do that just as long as you want me to. I'll do anything you want me to do. He has created us unto good works that He's already planned for us. Our walk. God has a place for us. We need to make full use of our opportunities. We need God to take us and use us as He will, where He will, how He will. Now, I, I don't know about you, and I don't know what's going on in your mind and your heart. These are thoughts that maybe are so elementary to you and You've never even thought about it before. But I'm telling you, for me, coming from my background, the day that I realized that the God who created the universe knew me personally and was interested in me and was forming in me and shaping in me a servant for a particular ministry that he had in mind for me, that I didn't have to worry about that. I can put that aside. All I have to worry about is serving him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. That's what it's talking about. I can make serving Him the priority of my life. He's the master. I don't have to worry about taking care of me. He'll take care of me. I just have to worry about serving Him. Amen. I look back over now 50 years of ministry. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back on it. I wouldn't change it. Has it always been easy? No, it's not always been easy. Of course not. 
But I've always believed I was in the very center of God's will, doing what God wanted us to do. You can have a life like that, amen? You can know that. You can know that God has a purpose for you. I, I talk to young people sometimes coming out of difficult backgrounds and all kinds of different things that have gone on in their life, and they think, well, I could never serve the Lord this way or that way. Well, God can use anything in your life to make you what He wants you to be. And if God allows it, then God has a purpose for it. He's a purposeful God. You don't have any idea at this point in your life where you're going to end up. You don't. You don't know what direction God's going to send you. You don't know where you're going to go. You don't know what ministry exactly you're going to have. And, and by the way, some of those things God will change because God is a God who shuts doors and, and opens doors. Sometimes those things change over, over time. That's okay. God has designed you to do that. Don't you see? There's a people, there's a group, there's somebody waiting for you that God has prepared you to be a blessing to. God's teaching you. God's refining you. God's chipping away at you. God's forming you. You're His masterpiece. The constellations, the galaxies, God, ah, that's nothing. That redeemed sinner that I sent my son to save, that I poured my heart into, that I'm shaping and forming as a, as a testimony to my grace and my glory, that's my masterpiece. And that's you this morning. There sits before me a room full of the trophies of God's grace. And I'm excited to think about what God could do with a group this size if we'd get a hold of that, that God has purpose for you. Many of you know God's will for your life. Many of you simply don't. I, I talked to some of you through the week that you were here and you, you don't know God's will yet. Let me ask you something, just practical thing, all right? Has there been a time in your life since you've been saved when you've just said to the Lord, Lord Jesus, my hands are off. I will go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do, and I'll do it just as long as you want me to. Have you ever done that? You say, that's such a simple thing. It's everything. It's an important thing. If you've never done that, would you do that today? Would this be the day when you said, Lord Jesus, you do have a will for me. I am important to you. I do see that you have a ministry, a plan, a place, and I want to be in it. I want for my life, Lord, what you want for my life, and I give it to you. Would you do it today? I'll never go back on the decision that I made. Now, I did mine on old John Deere 4020. You don't have to have a John Deere 4020. You don't even know what one was. But you could do it right where you're sitting. You could do it right here at this altar. This could be a day that changed your life. If you let it. If you let God have your life, you'll never be sorry for that.